Good morning, friends. I'm anxious to get into our text today. I think it is going to be of great encouragement to you. I uh, trust the Holy Spirit will continue his activity amongst us this morning. Um, Seems that he's here, and so I'm anxious to see what he does in your heart. Let me ask you a couple questions to get you thinking along with me. How much of your life does God require of you in order to guarantee your inclusion in heaven? How much do you have to give up to God in order to be certain of the welfare of your eternal state? 50% maybe, that a good number? Um, How much effort, how much of our resources, money, how much time, how much of my family, my vocation, how much of me does God require? So the question is, how much have you given? How much is enough, I guess, to assure your place in heaven after you die? And are you sure about that? Well, the text that was just read to us that I'm going to be referring to quite often in the next few minutes explains this to us. I hope you heard it. The question that was asked of Jesus by this scribe was asked on Wednesday of the Passover week, and he answered three of the most difficult questions ever asked of anyone. And all three of these questions are recorded in Mark 12, all three of them you heard, and each of those questions were intended to stump, embarrass, and discredit Jesus. And each of Jesus' answers have become guiding standards and principles throughout human history ever since they were uttered. It's pretty impressive interchange between Jesus and these religious leaders on this day 2,000 years ago. The scribe in the story before us, we're going to focus on verses 28 through 34. This scribe approached the debate between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees because it was a public debate. It was going on in front of everybody in the courtyard of the temple where thousands of people were, many of whom were listening to this debate. And verse 28, you'll notice, says that that Jesus answered all the questions of these detractors well. It's an important observation from Mark, the author here. The, The scribe came, in fact, rooting for the opponents of Jesus. He himself was a Pharisee who was an expert in the law. That's what scribes were. And not an expert in the civic law, but expert in the religious law, what guided the principle of living for all Jews. He was an expert. And he had a personal interest in Jesus' destruction because he was a Pharisee, remember. The teaching of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus was undermining the authority of the religious leaders of the day. And so he had a vested interest in seeing Jesus go down in flames. The guy asking the question here, the scribe. At least that was his professional position. All right, and it's important you hear hear that because I think there's more going on here than just this question, assuming that it's meant to undermine Jesus. So let's look at the question 
And in your outline in the bulletin, it's an important question, it says. So the scribe was standing there listening to Jesus as he answered these questions, as they confronted one another with their opinions about the issues they were bringing up. And Jesus' clarity, Jesus' brilliance, really began to overwhelm this scribe, it seems. I think inwardly, the, the scribe might have been even applauding Jesus and, and encouraging Jesus to keep going. Because maybe he, he had these questions and concerns in his own heart about his religion. I think subconsciously, he was even being drawn to Christ in this moment. And I think this drawing is what caused him to ask his own question of Jesus in this moment that's recorded here in these verses, 28 through 34. And, and it seems like it, it was the only question asked that day that wasn't based on trickery or hypocrisy. It seems like it was a, a genuine question from this scribe. So look at verse 28. It says, he, he, he came up, he walked up, and heard them debating. In other words, he wasn't part of the planned trap. He, he saw Jesus debating some religious leaders over there that he knew them. And so, ah, I'm going to go see what they're talking about. So he wasn't part of the plan to undermine Christ in this setting. His question may have begun with a bit of interest in tripping Jesus up, but as Jesus answered, I, I think Jesus' words began to melt the heart of this scribe. I think that maybe even before he asked, his heart had begun to be influenced by the Holy Spirit, maybe even called and touched by the Holy Spirit. In my personal opinion, we're going to see this guy in heaven. <clears throat> so he asks, which commandment is the most important? Seems like a legitimate question to ask of a rabbi, doesn't it? Yeah. And to give you some appreciation for the question that was being asked of Jesus, the Jews had 613 commandments that they were expected to follow. 365 of them were negative. You could use, do one a day and get through the year. You know, like we have daily Bible reading, they had daily commandments. It's 365 negative ones, 248 positive ones. Some were considered light in consequence, some were considered heavy in consequence. Of the 613 laws outlined in the Pentateuch, which one was the most important, Jesus? You take your pick. And this question had, I think, been the focus of many debates between religious leaders for years. They would sit around like seminary students do and discuss the finer details of the law, God's law. And they had dissected all the law, these 613 laws, down to the minutiae and all the laws had for centuries been at the debate over which one was most important. Certainly, we have to be alert to the heavy consequence laws. Maybe not so much the light consequence laws, but certainly the heavy ones of those which is most important. This was the debate. This was the conversation that these guys had for centuries. And now we get to the critical answer. Jesus' answer. What made Jesus' answer so profound and genius was not exactly what he said, but how he tied two different commandments together, which had never been done before. 
at least has never been recorded before. They, Jesus' answer amazed the scribe, this one asking, and amazed all that were listening that day. All he did was to quote scripture that they already knew. Both of the things Jesus answered were quotes from scripture, but, but it was in the fusing of these two separate scriptures together that was so impressive, so genius. And the implications of this divine fusing were impressive. Let, let me review some of the implications of these for you. First of all, the first implication is that Jesus' answer summarized the entire law, summarized all 613, including the Ten Commandments that we're familiar with. Love God and love people. That is a summary of the entire law. The first part of Jesus' answer summarized the first four commandments of the ten, found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 11, which have to do with our love for God. Have no other gods before me, and so forth. First four commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second part of Jesus' answer, having to do with loving each other, summarized the final six laws given in the Ten Commandments. You know, don't do bad things to your neighbors. Those were the six laws that were the second half of the Ten Commandments and summarized all ten, all 613 of the commandments. It was a comprehensive summary, which is why it was so astounding to those listening to him. Second implication is that Jesus' two-part answer showed that love for God and love for others cannot be separated, which Pastor Rick identified in the liturgy. You can't separate those two things. This was news to them. They thought they could dissect the entire law. Jesus comes along and goes, no. Here's the summary, and they're both intricately connected. If you love God, it will be revealed in your love for people. So there's no other way to love God, Jesus was saying. The third implication is that Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself put new feet on God's desire for us to love each other. Oh, this is how you do it. As yourself. <laughs> that addition of as yourself, love others as you love yourself, provides a clarifying element on what it means to love others. In the same way you care for yourself, care for those around you. Jesus knew this about every one of us, that we all love ourselves, even if we hate things about ourselves. We ultimately love ourselves and do everything we can to keep ourselves happy, don't we? All of us, without exception. The, the scribe was amazed, if not more so than the crowd, because he knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. He had memorized the first four, five books of the Old Testament, maybe the entire thing. He knew it. He knew it backwards and forwards. His reply to Jesus reveals a softening of his heart. He said, you are right, teacher, verse 32. You're right. You're spot on. A few commentators, when I looked into this a little bit, that answer is greater than our English language can handle. That the answer, you are right, actually could be translated, beautifully said, teacher. Or, what a beautiful answer. That's the heart being revealed to us here. What a beautiful answer, Jesus. 
So the first response or the first part of the critical answer was love God. So Jesus' answer takes us to the core of what really matters, doesn't it? Even to us today. He takes us to the non-negotiables of a genuine, genuine relationship with God. If you truly have an authentic relationship with God, you will love him and love the people he's created. Takes us right to the core of our being, doesn't it? The core of what we say we believe. Our love for God should be all-consuming because he created us, he sustains us, he loves us, provides for us all good things. He orchestrates our lives, even the bad parts, to bring about our eternal joy. Even when we pass through the darkness of life that is inevitable, it's all for the purpose of creating in us a Christ-likeness that brings eternal joy. We see here in Jesus' answer that Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy 6.4, which was called the Shema. In the Hebrew world, uh, that's an important point. The Shema was, was a quoting simply of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and it was done every single day by every practicing Jew. And by the way, it's still happening every single day by every serious Jew. They recite the Shema to themselves and to each other to remind themselves that obedience to God must go beyond the external to be of any value at all. It cannot end with the external. It must be all of me, not just the external things you can see. Yeah. The Shema is a call, is a call to love God with every ounce of our being. What's the most important command? Love God with every ounce of yourself, is what Jesus said. Kent Hughes, preacher, commentator, author, commented on this by saying, it doesn't take much of a man to receive God's grace, but it takes all of him. If someone has a genuine encounter with God's grace, it affects every part of his being. If it doesn't, you haven't had a genuine encounter with God's grace. This is what's between the lines here in what Jesus is saying. Nothing is left out. Love for God must flow from the deepest part of your being. When Jesus added that we must love God with not only our hearts but our soul, he, must, he, he meant that it must include your emotion. So you're not going to sit here on Sunday morning as a stick would sit here. You would actually, you're going to respond emotionally to what you hear, what you sing, what you hear in your prayers. It also includes your mind, so that means your will, your motivations, your intentions. Loving God also includes your strength, which is about your physical being. Working hard for the kingdom of God, getting tired, is a part of loving God. When's the last time you got tired, tired, physically tired, in serving the Lord? That's included. The kind of love that God requires of his people is a comprehensive love. The word all is repeated four times here by Jesus to emphasize the comprehensive nature of God's or our love for God. It's a call for total devotion. Now, Sinclair Ferguson wrote this, God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole life for the duration of our lives. 
You getting a picture of this? What's on the table? John MacArthur wrote, love for God is the foundation of the Christian life. It's the defining characteristic identifying a true believer. So Jesus' identification of the most important command of God confronts the authenticity of our relationship with him. Now let me ask you something or address something that you all, maybe not all of you, 99% of you are feeling. Guilt. Right? You're thinking, good grief, that is not possible. <laughs> so my question that I wrote in my notes was, are you feeling guilty enough yet? Or do I need to keep pounding on this until the last of you hard-hearted folks are included? Are you guilty enough? See, listen, listen, listen here. This must be said as we mull the inadequacy of our love for God. No one perfectly loves God in this way, except Jesus, the Son of God. Hear me. You who are legalists especially, hear me. Psalm 14, 1 says, no one does good. Paul quoted that in Romans 3, where he also said, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And this theme continues. It's a drumbeat throughout Scripture. You can't do it. <laughs> Remember, Jesus was asked about what is the most important commandment, wasn't he? They didn't ask him, what does God care about the most? He said, what's the most important commandment, the scribe asked. He was asking about the law. And Jesus' answer was a reflection of that question about the law, the religious law. The law was never, listen, the law was never intended to be a means of salvation. And as I was talking to you about the love of God, that's exactly where your heart went, wasn't it? You started examining yourself, which is good, and trying to justify certain things to make sure that God knew you loved him enough, which is why I asked the question, how much of your life does God need for you to get to heaven to begin the sermon? The law was never intended to be a means of salvation. It was designed to bring us to the point of despair which was my intent in setting it up the way I did. To get you to the point of despair, thinking this is, isn't possible. I've never loved God that much in my life. What? Not even at junior high Bible camp. The law was designed to bring us to the point of despair over our failure so that we would run to a savior. <laughs> Some of you are already running. Some for the door, some for Jesus. <laughs> Friends, there is great value in using this command to evaluate the authenticity of your faith, but it is not the way into a relationship with God. Did you hear that? It's a great way to evaluate your faith, but it is not the way into a relationship with God. In other words, it's not like you can work harder and harder adding spiritual accomplishments to your resume until finally you are worthy to be included in God's family. No, no, no. That's not what this is about. The gospel is for people who can't do that. 
people like you and me. True believers are forgiven for not loving God as we should. Right? Isn't this what the gospel tells us? Exactly. But authentic believers have been given a new heart that in fact does have a constant impulse to love God more and more. So recognizing that you don't love God as you should, if you're authentically saved, genuinely saved, you have this impulse that keeps pushing you that direction, doesn't it? That I should love God more and hating your failure for not doing so. Which is why the psalmist said in Psalm 119.32, Enlarge my heart so that I might run in your ways. I want more of that, Jesus, we would say. Unbelievers, on the other hand, do not have this impulse. They're content with their small efforts, and they're satisfied with their self-centered religion. They're satisfied with checking their boxes and convincing themselves that all is okay. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, in genius fashion, Jesus connects love others as you love yourselves. This is where we're heading next. This is the second part of Jesus' answer. It's inseparable from the first, which I already mentioned. His answer, which is why he connected the two, is genius. <laughs> These two commandments have been inseparable in the mind of God since he issued them. And by the way, they're both issued. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. Deuteronomy 6, love God. Leviticus 19, love others. Both in the first five books of the law. The Apostle John, as we saw earlier, affirms this intricate connection of loving God and loving others in his first epistle, 1 John 4, 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Makes total sense. Some of you may say that you can never love others enough. I, I just can't love people enough. And that may be true if we think of love in the biblical sense. But because we have a sin nature, we have a tendency to twist biblical truth, don't we? Yeah, so we can say, oh, well, you can never love anybody enough. But Jesus, <laughs> amazingly, um, says that we actually can if we don't think biblically about love. So what did Jesus do? He put controlling guardrails on personal interest. Love others as you love yourself. What does that mean? Well, the things on the surface are obvious. Things that you would desire, things that you need would be done for you. The thing that's not so obvious is that could be understood as in following. You know certain things aren't good for you, so you don't indulge. Right? You know certain things aren't good for you, so you don't do it, or don't eat it, or whatever. Right? In the same way, we must take caution when loving others. There's the guardrails as others, so we don't overindulge them, so we don't spoil them. We don't give, into, give them a God complex. Well, sweetheart, if you don't want to eat that, then don't. That's not loving. <laughs> and so we don't do that. Includes confronting when necessary. Thirdly, we see a revealing response. So this conversation is 
developing and exploding in mushroom fashion right before the eyes of all present. And then we see a revealing response from the scribe and from Jesus. From what the text says, this scribe wasn't disappointed in Jesus' answer. What a beautiful answer, remember? He was astonished, even to a greater degree than what he had already heard from, from Jesus' answer in the first two questions. And it says about them that they marveled at those answers. So he was impressed, to say the least. And so look at this revealing response from the scribe, verse 32 and 33. And the scribe responded to Jesus' answer and said to him, You are right, teacher. Beautiful answer, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbors as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. <laughs> the scribe understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. The scribe even indicated that he understood the law, the purpose behind the law. It wasn't to jump through hoops. This scribe was light years of some of the his fellow religious leaders, seems, it reveals his heart. He knew that all the rites and traditions, all the sacrifices and offerings, were all pointing to a relationship with God. Loving God was the goal of all this religious practice. He knew it. And he, he knew that it wasn't just about getting it done which seems like that was the point that the other religious leaders landed on. Jesus said that he answered wisely. That's a wise answer, scribe. The scribe knew that Jesus was spot on in his answer, and his reply to Jesus confirmed that God was at work in his heart. He knew that all this stuff, all these commandments, were given by God to draw us to himself. To, to create a relationship with our Creator. That God was concerned about the heart. Of course, the natural man, untouched by God, doesn't think this way. This is why we know that God was working on his heart. And if God begins something, what do we learn from Philippians 1.6? He completes it. This is why I think this guy's going to be in heaven. He wasn't thinking like an unregenerate man. He was thinking like a converted man. The natural man's committed to the outward appearances and to pretense, impressing people around them. The natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. This guy did. Why? Because I think the Holy Spirit had already converted his whole, his soul, and he didn't even know it. So the question that we must wrestle with this morning is, that, is this, do I understand the fundamentals of the gospel? As I sit here in church this Sunday, do I understand that my love for God reveals whether or not God has done a work in my heart? 
Do I truly grasp that in order to enter the kingdom of God, he must be the focus of my life, all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength, all of me? This, there must be some evidence, in other words. I can evaluate my love for God by observing my sacrificial love for others around me. Do you ever evaluate that part of your life? We should. And then we have Jesus' response. And this is where I want to end. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God, verse 34. If you have a means to do so, I'd like you to underline that in your Bible. And if you're using one of the church's Bible, go ahead and underline that too. Those Bibles in the pew in front of you. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Friends, try putting yourselves in the shoes of this scribe. You'd be thinking, what? I'm not in the kingdom of God, I'm a scribe for Pete's sake. I'm an expert in these things. But, on the other hand, if he was being effectually called, if he had already been converted, he wouldn't have been thinking that. He would have been thinking, well, t tell me what's next, Jesus. What else do I need to do? Please help me. I'm so close, get me over the line. Right? That's our heart. If someone were to tell you that, that you respected, after examining your life and they said to you, you're so close to being a Christian, what would you say? <laughs> Please help me over the line, right? Yeah. So consider, consider how far, examining the life of this scribe up to this point, Consider how far you can go in religion and still not be a true disciple of Christ. This scribe was at the top of his class. He understood spiritual things more than most of his peers. His response to Jesus' answer demonstrate this. He got it. So we must not only be intellectually understanding the leading doctrines of the gospel, which we get through sitting in church year after year, but we must embrace those doctrines and be guided by them in our lives. It's not something that we say from the pulpit or in Sunday school class or you read about in your devotions or in the books you're reading that are intended to tickle the ears. No, it's intended to change the heart, which results in changed behavior. I pray that we never rest till we are inside the kingdom of God, till we have truly repented, truly believed. If we rest satisfied with being not far from the kingdom, then we're going to have a sad end, aren't we? Don't be satisfied with being so close and yet not there. John Wesley, the famous John Wesley, his life is helpful for us in this matter. Turns out that Mark 12, 34 was John Wesley's life verse. You are not far from the kingdom of God. We need to sharpen our minds and think deeply on this passage as John Wesley did. Wesley was honest about everything in his life, which is amazing. Uh, transparent in almost every way, it seems, personal matters, spiritual matters. When he returned from his missionary trip to America, for example, in 1735, he bared his soul to his close Christian friends and announced that he didn't believe that he was saved. After his missions trip, he said this. 
he wasn't interested in impressing them, in other words. He didn't care what they thought other than he wanted to get to the bottom of his spiritual struggles. What's my problem? He was asking his good Christian friends. Wesley said this, and I quote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? John Wesley said this. <laughs> and, and that question will be more impressive when you hear when it was asked. His missionary experience taught him about the wickedness of his own heart. Wesley was exactly like the scribe in Mark 12, which is why Wesley chose Mark 12:34 as his life verse. All the formal training anyone could get, the scribe had and Wesley had. Top of his class, across the board. After his formal education was complete, Wesley became a professor of Greek and logic at Oxford. In other words, he wasn't a dummy. Wesley became the professor, and then he was also, immediately after he was ordained, I mean, uh, became the professor of Oxford, he was ordained as a priest in the Church of England in 1728, seven years before his missionary trip. He was a pastor, he was a teacher at Oxford in the religious department. His friends were a list of who's who in Christian history. George Whitfield, ever heard of that guy? Uh, William Law, his own brother Charles Wesley, and the list goes on and on. He had all the right associations, he had all the right education, he was a pastor, he was a teacher of theology. He set aside an hour every day for private worship, he fasted twice a week, he visited prisons, he worked with poor and sick, and did all of this because he wanted to think of himself as a Christian before 1738. Just like us. Wesley's obstacle, though, up to the point of his conversion, was understanding the inward nature of Christ's requirements. Up until his conversion, he thought everything was about the external. Showing up. He had the externals down pat, just like the scribe in Mark 12. But Wesley said after his true conversion that his religious exercise gave him little comfort and no assurance of his acceptance by God. So ask yourself the same question Wesley was asking himself. Do I feel at peace and comfortable in my relationship with God? Do you feel an assurance, a spirit, Holy Spirit guided comfort in your soul? When Jesus told this scribe in Mark 12 that he was not far from the kingdom of God, it meant that he remained outside the kingdom of God. You're not far, unless the Holy Spirit had already converted him, and that was written for our sake as well. You see, because you're so close on this one, Jesus could have said, but we know that almost doesn't count, right? Almost, except as they say, doesn't count unless it's horseshoes or hand grenades. When we stand before God, he's not going to say, oh, man, you were so close on this one. Why don't you come on in? No. 
It wasn't until Wesley spent time with the devoted Moravians, missionaries, by the way, that Moravian missionaries he met on the ship back from America to England, that he was truly saved. They helped him see that genuine relationship with God is an inward reality, not a jumping through hoops. It's something that consumes the heart, the soul, the mind, the life. The Moravians helped Wesley see that grace was a gift from God. And that gift resulted in a sold out person. When, when Wesley asked the Moravians how could he experience this grace from God, this is what Wesley wrote in his journal about their answer. This is a quote from Wesley's journal. They replied with one mouth that this faith was a gift, the free gift of God, and that he would surely bestow it upon every soul who earnestly and perseveringly sought it, end quote. So on May 24th, 1738, as Wesley randomly opened his Bible, he read that beautiful statement which in nine words condensed the progress of his spiritual pilgrimage from Mark 12, verse 34. You are not far from the kingdom of God. That evening, journal. In the evening, quote, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did in fact trust Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me at that moment that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death, unquote. The rest of John Wesley's life is well known to us, isn't it? That's why he's famous. He became one of the most powerful tools in God's hand in the history of the church. He preached in St. Mary's in Oxford. He preached in churches all throughout England and across America. He spent the rest of his life loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He preached 42,000 sermons, which are recorded and you can read. He averaged 4,500 miles of travel per year on a horse, not in a car or airplane. He rode this horse about 65 miles per day, traveling everywhere he could in order to preach. He preached on the average three sermons per day. When he was 83, he wrote this in his journal. I am a wonder to myself. Sound, doesn't sound like a good start, does it? <laughs> I'm really impressed with myself here on this one. But listen to what he says. I'm never tired either with preaching, writing, or traveling. I could go on serving the Lord forever. Oh, <laughs> The point of bringing Wesley into this conversation is that he loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved others as himself, which is why he preached, which is why he went, which is why he sacrificially served. Because God had gotten a hold of his heart. This is what the gospel does for people who embrace Jesus. They love God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength, knowing that failure is always right one step away, but running back to a loving, forgiving Savior.
every time that happens. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, impress upon our hearts the same truths that you impressed upon the heart of this scribe these many years ago. On this Wednesday of Passover week, God, impress these things deep within our souls. Help us not to be content with being close, but Lord, help us not rest until we are in the kingdom of God. Holy Spirit, we know that we're dependent on you for this. You must do your work of grace in our heart, and so we come to you pleading this grace and mercy every day knowing that you must do your work, not only to convert our souls, but to sanctify us, to conform us into the image of Christ, one that is in love with God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, do this amazing work of grace in each of us. Have mercy on us here at Sun Valley Church. Have mercy on our children. Have mercy in our community. Lord, please, Use us as your vessels of grace and mercy to those around us. We pray this in the name of our loving Savior, who did all these things for us. Amen.